We are back. I uh, found myself uh, a couple of weeks ago in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and I flipped on CNN and noticed they were having an interesting little science segment. They were talking about some work on the cat, the genetics of the cat, and how this might uh, bear some uh, some fruit in as regards to human biology. If we understand the genetics of the cat, we will better understand the genetics of the human. Now, on this program, there was an, a professor speaking very eloquently about the research who I noticed was Dr. Leslie Lyons. I also noticed below her name that she was from UC Davis. How fortunate for us. She's local. We were able to reach her and have her come on this program to tell a little bit about this interesting work. Uh, welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Leslie Lyons. My pleasure. Happy to join you today. Dr. Lyons, your research has involved gathering DNA from cats all over the world. My first question is, how did we get the domestic cat? I understand the leading theory is that it came from ancient Egypt. Many people feel that the cat was domesticated in Egypt. This is uh, certainly a very good hypothesis. Because um, the Egyptians were certainly fond of their cats. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you have a very popular Egyptian culture, a very romantic uh, and dynamic culture, and so a culture that people are generally rather interested in. And so, hence, people think, okay, then the cats obviously came from there, and they were very prominent in their culture. But that doesn't necessarily mean that was the true area where cats were domesticated. Um, We know from various other species, such as dogs and horses, that these species were domesticated in several different locations because they were associated with agricultural societies of humans. So why not the cat, too? Wherever human populations became agricultural and had large stores of grain, you have higher mice populations, and hence the cats, you know, will probably um, help out humans by relieving those mouse populations. I'm sure their value was recognized very early. Absolutely, and probably by several different populations. So the Egyptian theory is going out the window, but when I went to Egypt, they... I was, I was taught that there were two types of cats that you'd see in the hieroglyphics, and people thought that was very significant, uh, two distinct breeds. Is that by the boards? Well, I'm not sure if they mean breeds or um, two different, actually, species of cats. So there were certainly um, small cats, uh, so what would we would consider domestic cats, uh, but also there were other uh, larger species of cats, so they might actually more mean that aspect than actual different breeds of domestic cats. Uh, so I'm not familiar with there being different breeds, but there certainly are different um, cat species in the culture. Well, about how many uh, worldwide, how many different feline species do you estimate? Well, there's uh, in, in about the mid-30s. So oh. counting, counting all the um, large cats, such as tigers and lions and panthers, and then small cats, such as jungle cats and African wild cats, and then there's a whole group of variety of cats that are in South America, both in large and small. There's uh, about maybe 35 or so um, different species yeah. of felid. How, uh, how close would you say our domestic tabby is to these larger predators like the lion and tiger? Uh, well, um, that work has been looked at genetically by my formal lab, which was at the National Cancer Institute. And so we know relatively well the relationship um, back to lions and tigers. So that's kind of a distant uh, relationship, a bit older in time. So anywhere from you know 10 to 20 million years ago. 
um, what we want to look at is what is the most recent ancestor of the domestic cat. And so that's within a time frame that's even less than a million years. So it's very, very, very recent. So uh, what's your best guess as to when the cat started to become the cat? (laughs) Well, I'll definitely say something under a million years. (laughs) But uh, we know that, at least from Egyptian culture, you know that those domestication events were occurring around 5,000 years ago, so 2000 B.C. And um, so is that also true for um, other agricultural areas? So at least you would want to kind of pinpoint it to knowing different agricultural areas throughout the world, when did they become agricultural? That might be when the cat is becoming domesticated. So it's relatively recent, and it's when we went from hunter-gatherers to more farmers. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard 10,000 uh, B.C. for the dog, and I guess it's much, quite a bit less for the cat then. Um, probably, and, and you know, people argue whether the cat is truly domesticated in the first place, <laughs> <laughs> which I tend to agree with, you know. <laughs> Um, it does seem to be a rather incomplete process. I think so. I think it's kind of a mutual, perhaps parasitic event that's going on. <laughs> yes. So um, today, you, you, I guess there's about 50 different breeds of cat in the world? Yeah, about that. If, if you're kind of a bit of a splitter, then if you um, the biggest cat fancies, of course, are in England. That's where it really uh, started in full force. And the United States, there's a prominent cat, cat fancy in Australia and Japan. And, um, and other countries are starting to grow, grow also. A uh, good cat fancy in Europe also. Well, you're involved in something called the Feline Genome Project, which is doing some very hard science with the kitty cats. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. That was a kind of a name I kind of dubbed to it because everybody else had a genome project, <laughs> so why not the cat? People often mistake that that means we're sequencing the cat, but any genome project means a lot more than that. A genome project is a collaboration of all the scientists that are working on that particular species. So some people might just develop genetic resources, such as good families and genetic markers, and then those are shared with everybody else. Some groups work on particular diseases, like um, cancer, or blindness, um, or other um, coat color traits, something fun like that. Um, And so once these people all get together and interact, it kind of really forms a cohesive group that you can dub as a genome project. And uh, so by being team players, you can get a lot farther than just being individual researchers. And you'll see that a lot of science has moved in that direction. Sure. So you've got these different breeds of cat, and uh, and like, well, I guess anytime you want to develop a certain breed, you're going to be breeding brother to brother, sister to sister, and and, uh, and retain certain traits. Right. Yeah, certainly just due to the aspects of producing a breed. I mean, breeds are supposed to breed true. And right. in order to do that, you have to inbreed to some extent. So if you just have the random chance that you have a uh, trait that you don't like so much in that breed, then you probably have a higher potential of seeing that trait be expressed. Right. And what we have to remember is that humans have several genes um, in each one of us that if we started inbreeding would become higher in frequency. Um, so we're all walking around with uh, 10 to 12 uh, recessive traits that we wouldn't like to have expressed either. Right. 
I think most people have a concept that, uh, without being too technical, that, for example, in Europe, where royalty was bred to each other all of the time, we had nasty things like hemophilia come forward. Absolutely. That's a, that's a wonderful example. Another example is that if you know that you're from a particular population like um, Italians or Jewish, you know that there's a higher prevalence for certain diseases right. in those populations. So it's the same type of effect. And um, so we're working with um, various different cat breeds to try to find genes that cause some of these traits that we would rather not have around, such as polycystic kidney disease, uh, blindness, and uh, some cancers also. We're speaking with Dr. Leslie Lyons of UC Davis's School of Veterinary Medicine. As we see inbreeding, we find that uh, the proteins that you're getting um, are less than optimal, and, and that, that produces a disease. Now, um, maybe we could sort of, I think most people don't have a good feel for that. Maybe we could explain that a little bit. Yeah, well, every gene um, codes for some protein, and the protein is the part that's actually expressed. So that's what we see as our hair color, our eye color, um, our height, our weight. That's all protein expression, and it's a result of um, our genetic makeup. So um, that's exactly what's happening in the cats, too. You can have proteins that make fur long or make it short or make it orange or make it black, but then also some proteins control body metabolism and uh, control cell reproduction and pro proliferation. And so if those things go haywire, you might have some metabolism problem or you could have a cancer. So most of the times the genes act quite normally, but every once in a while they make a turn for the worse. Now have you located uh, the, the protein and, and gene that causes, say, polycystic kidney disease? We're hot on its trail. So we have um, a very good idea of what might be the genetic cause and uh, so this would be just a wonderful thing for the cat world. A majority of your fancy cats are Persian, and 40% of that population has uh, polycystic kidney disease. So it oh is, yeah, it's the most prevalent inherited disease, probably not only in cats, but in, in a lot of different species also. Now, this is a human disease as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's why we look at things like this. It's it's hard, honestly, to get money to, to work, look at these things in cats. And so if they're models for human conditions, then it's certainly the funding effort is a little easier. And, uh, but not only if we prove it's the same genes, we can still then use the information we have from humans to help treat the cats. And then potentially we can help develop drug and gene therapies in the cats, which then later can go help humans. Yeah, it always surprises me. I don't know why it should, but uh, being trained in medicine, when I come across any veterinary drug, it's usually the same doggone drug. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just change the doses a little bit, and there's some odd things you have to worry about with each species, and so you have to tweak them a little bit. But in general, mammalian physiology is very similar. And um, what's really cool is the retinal degeneration that we work with, we've seen in dogs that you can correct vision by gene therapy. And so if we can figure out why some of these Persian cats are going blind, if it's the same gene in humans, then we could do a trial, correct it in the cats, and then move it to the next species, which, which then potentially would be humans, and actually give people back their sight. 
Now, people talk a great deal about gene therapy. Are we going to be able to actually go in and, uh, and do patches on, on the DNA? Well, hopefully. Uh, if not at the DNA at the embryonic level, then hopefully maybe at the organ level. And so potentially we can correct an organ very early in its development, um, maybe just after a child is born or potentially even before a child is born and um, stop that organ from going haywire. So uh, potentially that could happen with our uh, blindness studies. Um, that could also happen with our polycystic kidney disease studies. Um, PKD is more prevalent than many d diseases combined, such as cystic fibrosis and Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Add all those up, and it still doesn't add up to the number of people that have polycystic kidney disease. So how would it work? You'd find, for example, in a, in a particular cat that was still uh, developing, you'd be able to actually inject some cells that might uh, replace a missing protein in the kidney, something like that? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, that's how they pretty much did it in the eye. The eye is very compartmentalized, and uh, so you can pretty much stick a needle through the white part of the eye, the sclera, and layer your uh, corrected gene product right onto your photoreceptor layer, which is a single-cell layer, and then those cells absorb up uh, the DNA. It corrects the DNA in those cells, and then they start producing normal protein. So the trick is to be able to get uh, your therapy diffused across your entire organ system. So the eye is actually relatively easy, whereas something like the liver or the kidney might be a little more challenging. In human case, I think the pancreas, we, we have diabetes as a, a scourge of mankind, yet my understanding is, and correct me from your position over in the, in the vet school, but that there isn't a good animal model for diabetes. It seems to be a human peculiarity. Well, actually, the cat is pretty decent in really? that area. Yeah, cats get uh, diabetes also, and, um, and so there is growing interest now from a couple different researchers to start looking at uh, di diabetic cats. And so there's similar associations. Cats that are older and get a little overweight tend to have a higher prevalence of uh, diabetes. And so it's, it's a decent model for, for diabetes in, in humans. Um, cats and dogs get epilepsy, another complex trait yeah. that is difficult to look at. And maybe our, our companion animals will give us some answers. Do you find that like when dealing with uh, cat genetics and human genetics that... Uh, that the DNA that you might, or the, uh, the gene sequencing you might find in a humans is quite different in a cat in terms of where all the uh, genes are located? Well, actually, um, the cat, as far as its chromosome makeup, is really very similar to humans. So mm -hmm. if you look at human chromosomes and then you look at cat chromosomes and you say, gee, those look rather similar. But the dog, another carnivore, so a very close relative of the cat as uh -huh. compared to humans, have very shuffled around uh, chromosomes. So at the chromosome level, the DNA is shuffled around quite a bit. But now at the sequence level, the cat and dog are about the same as compared to humans. So there's still the question of why did all that shuffling occur and how do genes interact? Sometimes when genes live in tandem, they act differently than if they work, live on different chromosomes. And so those little things are, are pretty cool and fascinating to find out. And just remember, there, there's going to be some small genetic difference that makes us not have whiskers, and the cat does. You right. know? So that right. gene is in there for us, right. but there's some little difference that says, hey, you're not going to make whiskers today. 
There was a study out recently that said that I think that the difference between the chimpanzee and the human, they've now narrowed it to quite a bit less than 1%. Yeah, well, we're uh, getting a lot of sequence done uh, for many of our different species. That's been something that's just so cool from the fallout of the Human Genome Project, is now that we have all this technology, all these instruments, uh, really interested individuals that want to work on genome sequencing, um, the NIH is now putting forward other species um, to get sequenced. So the dog actually started in June and we have the chimpanzee being sequenced, rhesus macaque will get up there. We need to get the cat up on the priority <laughs> list. It's, it's not up there yet, but uh, we're going to have some really interesting science in the next few years um, because of all this genetic uh, sequence information that we'll get. Great. couple final questions. Uh, how does the cat compare to the dog? I mean, the cat, to my mind, a, a cat is a cat, but yet when you look at the dog, the difference between a Great Dane and a Chihuahua, I mean, talk about a genetically altered organism. I mean, the uh, the domestic dog has got to be pretty high up on the list. How, how, how different is, is a dog DNA than, say, cat? Well, first off, cats rule and dogs drool. You know, <laughs> I'm just kidding, just kidding. But, uh, well, they're, they're actually very similar. And, again, that's a perfect example of how just one little tweak, one little change of one base pair in the DNA mm -hmm. can cause that huge amount of genetic variation. Why do we see that in the dog and not the cat? Well, if you think about cat species, the cat can go from a three to five pound Singapore, that's the smallest cat breed, up to a 500 pound tiger, where dogs, their species are generally all about the same. But within the breed of domestic dogs, yeah, you go from that little few-pound chihuahua up to the big Great Dane. So there's great, great plasticity there within the genetics anyhow. So I think that's mostly due to selection and hundreds of years sure. of selection as opposed to the cat. And we have been working on the dog, uh, as you say, quite a bit longer. Absolutely. So yeah. those are just, you know, humans have been geneticists and genetic engineers much longer than the scientists have been. Well, very interesting discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. Leslie Lyons. Oh, my F pleasure. Final question. Do you, do, you have a, do you have a cat? Oh, yeah, I have four cats. <laughs> four cats. A couple random bred ones, which are the best ones to get, uh, but a couple cool fancy breed ones, too. I, I love that. You just, you're going for the one with it's the uh, hybrid vigor, I guess. That's right, yeah, exactly. The yeah. classic uh, wild-type tabby. All right. <laughs> Well, thanks again. Hey, my pleasure chatting with you. Once again, that was Dr. Leslie Lyons, Assistant Professor in Genetics at the School of Veterinary Medicine here at UCD. And uh, for the record, I have three cats myself. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I am Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM. Stay tuned for our third and final segment today. We'll be talking to our old friend Gary Chu a bit about something that we, uh, uh, it's not exactly public affairs, but then again, it is, the movies. A little bit about the movies and more on current events.